by DVD and you are listening to the first episode of Death by DVD for the year 2024. I'm Linnea and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. And you know, I thought to myself, what better way to start a new year filled with new chances and hope, magic, a fresh clean slate than by talking about last year. That doesn't sound regressive at all, does it? But alas, it is that time of the year where critics all across the world form their best and worst list of the previous year. And that is exactly what we will be doing on this episode of Death by DVD. I am your host, Harry Scott Sullivan, and my list isn't the usual list, which I guess makes things more exciting for this episode, But allow me to elaborate, and it probably won't be as exciting as it was. Last year, I did not watch a lot of new movies. In fact, the most watched decade for me was the 20s and the 60s, which there's a huge jump in between both of them with motion pictures, and the even weirder thing is it's mostly the same director. And I tend to, more often than not, not watch quote-unquote older movies, but I don't get around to the new movies of the year until the next year. So in 2024, I'm sure I'll see a great deal of 2023 films. In 2023, I did see a lot of 2022 films. You can see where that's going. I don't have to keep explaining. So my list is a little bit unusual, and I can say firmly at the beginning of this episode that boy howdy is this low effort, because I didn't actually make the list myself. I didn't spend hours decisively weighing the scales. Is this the best? Is this really the best? Is this the second best? Is this even the third best? No, no, no. And many people do. Some people, you're going to get hours, maybe even weeks worth of work with lists like this, where they go through every single release. And I don't know how many movies came out in 2023. If we were a good show, I might have statistics and numbers like that, but we aren't and we don't. But let's just go ahead and say, estimating here, that there were a lot of movies that came out in 2023. So some people's lists are are works of art themselves with the amount of effort and time that they have placed into creating a wonderful experience for you. But I didn't do that. My list was created conveniently by Letterboxd. And we'll take a brief moment here. I have no affiliation with Letterboxd. I don't know anybody at Letterboxd. Just talking personally. If you're a film fan, a movie connoisseur, even if you just watch movies on the weekends, you don't have to be as up your own ass as I am. You can watch one or two movies a week. I still really suggest downloading and starting an account at Letterboxd. It's a great app. 
You can use it on your desktop computer also. It's just wonderful. It helps you categorize the films that you see. We'll talk more about that in a couple minutes with the list. It keeps track of everything that you have seen, and it also helps expose you to new movies. It's it's a bit of a social media, a bit of a social media, it certainly is a social media in many aspects. You can see other people's reviews. People can follow you and comment on your reviews. It's just a fun, really wonderful place, and it's it's so much better than spending hours going through Instagram or all the negativity on X or Twitter or whatever. There's plenty of negativity on Letterboxd, don't get me wrong. Sometimes I go fucking bananas over reading reviews of, of how people either just miss the point, refuse to see the point, or there's an agenda behind the reviews, but also that's kind of the fun of being able to do it. I myself sometimes will post something that might be a bit learned. I might actually post a true opinion, or sometimes it'll be a quote from the movie, or utter brutal sarcasm. But I really think, especially if you're a fan of Death by DVD and what we do on this program, that you would really enjoy Letterboxd. I can't can't recommend it enough. And back to the whole list thing. It's one of the really great things about Letterboxd. They will make a fucking list. They will make a list for you of what you saw for the first time that year, what your highest rated movies of that year. If you're a fan of making lists, you can go crazy and make as many as you want. Though I do believe some of these features that I am discussing are on different tiers. You can pay for Letterboxd. You can use it for free. This isn't a fucking Letterboxd commercial, though. You know, maybe if they send me a free t-shirt or something, I'll be more inclined to promote Letterboxd for free, but that is entirely where my best of 2023 list comes from. It was manufactured for me by Letterboxd, and I did remove some films because I did not watch enough 2023 movies for the list to be completely 2023 movies. A bunch from the 20s and the 60s showed up because that's what I spend my time doing, is watching movies from the 20s and 60s, it seemed, in 2023. And every single moment of it was glorious. Oh, and just for reference, I'm sure that would be helpful, since I've mentioned it a bunch of times. You'd probably want to know the name of the guy I'm talking about. I've been working my way through the collective works of Yasujiro Ozu. I'm still not done. He'll probably be one of my most-watched directors in 2024. Great deal of work. Masterful artist. And if I remember... At the end of the episode, I'll just go ahead and tell you my most watched directors of the year. I'll do the whole list. But when I sat down and I looked at the list that Letterboxd had made, I I kind of agree with it. There's a few discrepancies in certain places, and I didn't do any editing. I didn't change things up in the list. I just removed movies that were not from the year 2023. But you know what? Just your luck. I watched enough movies to do an entire episode again where I just read a fucking list. And the crazy thing about that is people really seem to enjoy the list episode, so here you go. And we will begin the list from the very last film. I was a bit annoyed. I thought 20 would be great, and I really wanted to fit in a few more, but I only managed to watch 17 films from 2023, and I wanted to push a few more. But oh well. We're going to do the top 17 list, starting at the last film, moving forward. I, I, I don't need to explain. I'm sure you got the grip of all of it. So starting with number 17, let's get this show on the road. Onas Coron's Chupa. Now, I also want to state this is a best of kind of list, not a best and worst kind of list. I'm sure I'll have some, maybe, negative things to say about 
some of the films on this list, but it's not sort of a vice versa thing. I, I don't have any intention of doing worst of lists at all. It just seems like a waste of time and negative. Now, despite this sitting at 17, and even if I'd seen 20 films or 30 or even 40 films from 2023, this probably would remain at the very bottom of the list. This is a children's film. It's the most important thing. And it stars Christian Slater. Even wild that that sentence runs together. And it's not even his first children's film. You're going to have fun. Your dad always said San Javier was a magical place. And your cousins will be there. But I don't even remember them. And now a story has come out of Latin America about a creature called El Chupacabra. El Chupa what? El Chupacabras. You've never heard of it? Chupacabras doesn't exist. It's a fairy tale. Chupacabras. What about we call him Chupa? You know Chupa means sucker, right? Chupa. He'll be our little secret. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. There are some bad people out there who want to take advantage of these creatures. I know you saw it. We have to get him out of here. Let's go. We got to go. Whoa, whoa. Stop. Come on, come on, come on. Are you sure you know how to drive? Right. Yeah. Go, Volga! Don't have to be alone anymore. Your family is still out there. We will find them. Wherever you are, I will always be by your side. I guess when you hear the name of the movie, nothing would come to mind, but it's about a chupacabra, and it's a wonderful design for a chupacabra, although the CGI's not great, it's not uh, Avatar level, but it's whatever, it's a children's film, and when you're watching a children's film, you kind of got to rate things from that perspective, and what I took from this is, it, it's increasingly, as you go through the movie, there's a lot of harrowing stuff that happens, a lot of emotional stuff that happens, but it increasingly gets more and more and more positive, and ends with a crescendo of positivity. If I had children, I would show them this movie. I think it's uh, from ages five, three, they can follow the film, up to teenage years enjoyable. I enjoyed it, and I'm in my 30s. I thought it was fun. There's a scene where Mexican actor Demian Bashir suplexes Christian Slater in the middle of the desert. It's pretty awesome. Uh, this little boy finds a chupacabra. He wants to take care of it. Christian Slater, he's an evil scientist. He wants the chupacabra. The plot and the story doesn't matter whatsoever. Really, for me... And I think this should be for everybody. When you're watching something, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the budget. Don't even worry sometimes. 
this is important sometimes about the acting. If you're enjoying it, if you're having a good time, it doesn't fucking matter what anybody else thinks or the rating of this film on Rotten Tomatoes or some asinine place like that. If you felt anything, well, the art worked. And I enjoyed Chupa. It's very important to acknowledge that it is designed and made for children, though. It's not 2001 A Space Odyssey or Gladiator, something with a giant, huge budget that's supposed to look a certain way. It's supposed to look a certain way, sure, but it's a fucking children's movie about a friendly chupacabra. A happy little goat sucker that looks quite like a griffin. It's cute. But regardless, it would, no matter what iteration of this list could have existed would still have been at the bottom of it. And it's not like I have anything against creating best or worst lists. I just tend to not bother with it because I'm never really up to date. And I never really have been at all. I, I tend to always stay in the past, and there's just so much. There's so much I haven't seen. I never race to see the new movies of the year. There was a lot that I actually ended up seeing last year, 2023, because I was a guest on Watch Skip Plus pretty frequently at the beginning of the year, and I would have to go see those movies because that's what they do. They only discuss new films. There's a little plug for a podcast that you may enjoy, Watch Skip Plus. But I I tend to fall behind, and I'm not entirely as enticed by a lot of, of newer films. 2023 is a pretty good year. There was a lot of interesting films from independent productions to mainstream, big-budget Hollywood films that really reached out to me. I didn't see a lot that I wanted to see, but I did see enough for the list, which we should get back to. Number 16 on the list is Candy Cane Lane, directed by the great Reggie Hudlin, starring the great Eddie Murphy. And it was cute. It was, I think... In total, they wanted to create a new timeless Christmas classic, and the runtime is beefy on this film. It's two hours straight up, and it does not carry itself well for two hours. I mean, It's a Wonderful Life has some length to it, and I feel this was an attempt to make sort of an It's a Wonderful Life classic Christmas film, White Christmas, Bob Clark's A Christmas Story, You know what I'm trying to say. The first half of the film really got me. I love Jillian Bella's Pepper the Elf. The entire cast that plays Eddie Murphy's family. Tracy Ellis Ross, she's great. There's nothing bad about the performances. It just does not really stop. You just have this this wonderful first, maybe going into even the second half of the film. And then the third half, the CGI, just like with Chupa, it doesn't bother me that it's not the the most cutting-edge stuff. Just take what you can get and try and enjoy it if you can. It just pushes itself so much. It feels like we went from a movie to some sort of video game, and I like the idea, but from the second act onward, they're pretty much playing Sonic the Hedgehog, and it gets kind of boring. It is funny. I love the fact that Eddie Murphy has a scene where he's singing because he's great, and at this time, I'd like to point the audience toward YouTube so you can go find Eddie Murphy party all the time because Eddie Murphy's a great singer. I need your breakfast amount of reindeer. 
What? Why are you like this? Thank you so much, baby. Dad! Look. Sugar, got a lot of spice. Wow. Merry Christmas. Oh, hey. What's Christmas without a little terror? Check that list twice. What was your Christmas wish? I just wanted to be the best Christmas ever. Oh, ignore all the fine print. Honestly, it's like you're signing your life away. It's crazy. Hold up, that was your wish? Not like, I don't know, world peace? In hunger? And homelessness? Stop climate change? Save the polar bears? New Drake album? Oh, I love Drake. Point taken. Oh my god! Ooh, look at you, high stuff, looking like a tall drink of water. I'm enchanted. I have like I have no real complaints. I mean, I feel the movie drags for sure. It it just is too long. This this could have really been. I'd I'd even let it go to an hour and forty five. You could have fit everything in that was already in this movie, and nothing really needs to be removed. There's a lot of fat in the film that could have been trimmed, but I feel it could have been condensed and told, maybe making it a little bit more fun and timeless, but I, I just don't. I'm not going to watch this next year. This is not part of my Christmas regime. It's not going to be on the holiday film roll. It was nice to watch. I can give it that much. And just like Chupa, no matter how many movies could have been on this list, this still would have been on the bottom of it, so I have no discrepancy with it coming in at number 16. Now, number 15, I don't know. It certainly would not be appearing any higher on this list, but I think this may be my bottom film of the year, and I didn't hate this movie, but it is The Exorcist Believer. I have been outspoken as a fan and a defender of the David Gordon Green Halloween trilogy. I think they are the most interesting Halloween movies since John Carpenter's Halloween, at least Halloween movies that have Michael Myers in them. Let's say it that way so nobody gets pissed off over Halloween 3, okay? And I'm also pretty sure on previous episodes I've brought up having faith in David Gordon Green doing an Exorcist trilogy, pun intended. And it wasn't very good. But it wasn't unwatchable. It's strange seeing the amount of hate this movie gets, especially for modern critics that are like 25 to 40 years old. You weren't fucking there when The Exorcist came out. It just ruins it. It ruins my childhood. How? It, it does fucking not. It's just a movie. Shut up. Get over it. Now, it isn't good. I don't really care for the story. There's not a lot of elaboration, which is really needed in this essence. And uh, the... Friedkin's Exorcist, you go back and you watch that motherfucker, there's not a great detail on what's going on, but there are visuals and visual cues that allow you to understand the story and let it kind of build up inside of you, and it really becomes terrifying. The movie and the visuals of that film is one of the reasons why it's called a masterpiece, though it still isn't the best movie by William Friedkin, but we did a whole episode about that that you can go find on your own. But Exorcist Believer, it, it's not that it was 
too vague. It almost seemed too dense. They have a very firm story. There's not a lot of explanation to the story, and it was really great seeing Ellen Bernstein, but I, I just don't know what her role is. That's how I felt through most of my viewing experience when I saw this in theaters. I just don't understand the roles everyone's playing. I don't understand what the point everyone's playing is. And they try to bring in this, like, multi-religion angle. To, I don't know. It's a mess. It's either too many cooks in the kitchen or not enough clarity. I have no idea where this series is even going to go from this point. It ended with interest. I'll remain spoiler-free and just say that the ending really enticed me. But it makes The Exorcist 2 look really, really good. Which I'll be the first to fucking defend Richard Burton. For a guy that had trouble standing up because he drank five-fifths of vodka a day, he did really, really good in that movie. Max von Sydow returns, James Earl Jones, but goddamn, The Exorcist 2 is not a good movie. But The Exorcist Believer will make you start defending The Exorcist 2 as a good movie. And that's just two negatives kind of invading their own spaces, and we're not growing. We're not getting anything more out of this. But the question also I would like to ask is... What did you expect out of a legacy movie with a sequel coming out 50 years later? You really couldn't have thought it would be that good, right? You couldn't have... <laughs> Don't put all your money in this one being the one, this one being good. And I still will stand firmly with David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy. They, they are... I, I take John Carpenter's Halloween, David Gordon Green's Halloween Kills, and then Halloween Ends. That's my... Halloween viewing experience, that's it, they wrapped it up for me, I don't have to watch H2O ever again, and I just don't think even if the next sequel is mesmerizing, it can make up for Exorcist Believer. Didn't dislike the movie, but clearly very much did not like it either. And it doesn't come down to any specific performances. I thought it was well shot. I don't like the color grading. I think it was just a little mucky. It's very brown. It's very earth tones. There's nothing that really reaches out toward you. And the 4K release of Friedkin's Exorcist was tweaked. He, he spent some time working on that before he died last year. And it's even scarier. And so much of what makes a horror movie isn't just acting or jump scares. It's the look and tone and the feeling of the film that you were watching, and that really carries through 50 years later with The Exorcist. Exorcist Believer, it's just brown. Kind of brown. Exorcist 3, Blatty did a beautiful job. The movie has a, <laughs> actually gets kind of a funny contrast, a very monotone feel to it because so much of that time in the film that you're viewing is spent in the hospital, but the contrast of the blacks and the white and the sterile feeling of the floor and, and the shadows that play off each other, when something colorful happens, which there's a beautiful jump scare in that film, one of the greatest of all time, you get this flash of color with it, you really pull yourself in for that, and you allow the experience to scare you a little bit more. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about The Exorcist Believer. It will we'll wait until another one comes out, if they finish it. I have no idea. And conveniently, the next film, 15 on the list, it's Ben Wheatley's Meg 2, which sounds really fucking weird to say. Ben Wheatley? THE Ben Wheatley? Kill list, a field in England, in the earth, that Ben Wheatley? Yeah, that Ben Wheatley is making a Jason Statham action movie about a megalodon? Yes, that Ben Wheatley. And I went into this thinking, 
well, it's going to be that Ben Wheatley. Nah, man, he just made some money. And that's fine. It's completely fine. If you're not familiar with The Meg, it is a sci-fi channel original movie that has been made with a ridiculous budget. I believe The Meg 2 is 395 million American dollars. It is a $395 million Christopher Olin Ray movie, and Ben Wheatley fucking directed it. No touch of his weirdness. It is very by the book, very by the numbers, and good for him. I don't consider it selling out. I think it's buying in. You make a $395 million movie, then maybe he'll get some chump change to come back and make something really extravagant and weird. Regardless, I'm happy that Ben Wheatley is getting this type of work. And let me fucking tell you, I did not dislike Meg 2. It's trash. It's utter nonsense. It's a popcorn flick. It stands for nothing. It has no deeper meaning of art. It's not thought-provoking in the least bit, but it was a great way to spend an afternoon. I had a blast. I saw it theatrically. Almost every film on this list I managed to see theatrically. So at the beginning of the episode, I was kind of giving myself some shit of not seeing enough films from the year. But, you know, I'm going to the theater. I'm supporting releases. I can feel good at least seeing 17 theatrical films, which cost, like, 150000 American dollars. I don't know if you've been to the theater recently, but a medium Pepsi and a small popcorn cost $30. Fuck! What are you trying to do to me, marquee cinemas? Meg 2. The Trench. Disappointed nobody said shut up, Meg, in any of these films. Hey everybody, Brian's the new Meg. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's the new Meg. Brian's the new Meg. Yeah, you're the new me. Shut up, Meg. For 65 million years, there was a species which had no dominant predator on the planet. And as we already know, that was the Megalodon. But the Meg, if it had a predator capable of coping with it, both in size and in strength. And according to the myths, it was called the Kraken, his eternal rival. Why are you swimming with the Meg, Jumei? I'm conducting an experiment. Is the experiment do I taste good? This is a bad idea. Just a little bit. Jonas, we've got company. It's an ancient ecosystem untouched by man. Whatever is down there. It is trying to make its way to the surface. Come on, you ugly bastard. Come on! I think it's just downright silly explaining the plot and what happens in every single one of these films for the list, and that's going to take us forever. You can use IMDb just as well as me. And this is a best-of list. It's not a let's scour over every single film. But, uh, Meg 2, I do understand people having disdain for this movie because it is sort of a jumble of scenes and the storytelling devices that are used is just not very clear. It doesn't resound. It has no deeper meaning. But it's a strange contrast that I, I, I love film. I love movies. I think it's the strongest 
way of creating art. I think it's one of the most pure, if not the purest forms of art. And there are so many different ways you can do it. But does that mean every movie has to be a piece of art? And does that mean, if not, that it's almost prostitution, whoring out art for the sheer entertainment of other people? I don't fucking know. I don't care so much either at this point. I enjoyed myself, and that takes us back to something I had said at the beginning of this. If you felt something, then you fucking felt something, and you're allowed to feel that, and you're allowed to enjoy it. Do I think Meg 2, The Trench, is a good movie? Eh, but it's not a bad movie. It's a $395 million movie, and I will say Jason Statham. I don't care what he does. It just seems believable. I feel that this middle-aged guy from England just can do it all. He can breathe at the bottom of the Mariana Trench without anything on. It just gives him a deviated septum. Sure, yeah, it's Jason Statham. Why not? It seems believable with him. I almost feel like studios just kind of push it and push it and push it. What weirder shit can we get Jason Statham to do? Because it just seems right. I don't know what it is about him, and maybe that is a great credit to his performance, but we went from years ago, Guy Ritchie gangster movies, to Jason Statham killing Megalodons with just a piece of metal. It's kind of fucking wild. And good for him. I have not a bad thing to say. <laughs> what a great list. It's just this prick going, I don't know, form your own fucking opinions. What's the point of listening to this show? I don't know. Because I'm just so fucking delightful. I'm just, I don't know, I guess I'm ambivalent toward this. I, I, I don't have a, a care. I doubt I'll ever want to watch it again. I don't think I'll ever want to watch The Meg again. But when Meg 3 eventually comes out, I'm sure it's already in production. I'll probably see it. And it wasn't like, oh, I gotta kill some time, I'm gonna waste this afternoon. I went to go see Meg 2. I thought it would be really fun to see theatrically on this massive, huge screen, and it is. Some of these films are for the moment. Some are just for the year. The technology has gotten to this point where they can make a movie featuring this, 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 and this, and you can go see it. It's never going to look as good on your TV. It's never going to sound as good on your TV. Go see it in theaters sort of thing. And I take it for what it is. I, I relish going to theaters and being able to sit and have that experience. So it's not that I'm undecisive. The Meg 2. I still would have seen it one way or the other. Not a lot of action going on so far. We're not, we're not really breaking any ground here, are we? And unfortunately, the next film, number 14 on the list, is not going to help at all. Quasi, 2023, directed by Kevin Heffernan. It's a broken lizard movie. All those wonderful people you love from Beer Fest, Super Troopers, and Club Dread have returned. And this time, it is the story of a hunchback who finds himself in the middle of a murderous feud between the Pope and the King of France. I just read that from IMDb, I'm sorry. Medieval France. A time that ushered in a new era of nobility. Have another guard kill that one. Yes, I am. I'm sorry, who? Kill him. No, I couldn't, my lord. I have known Arno my entire life. We came up together as squires. Would it be easier if we got a third guard to come in and kill both of these guys? Oh, whoops, here we go. Good work. Quasi! 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 Holy shit. Come on, we're gonna be late. 
know what your problem is? Is it that I've got a fatty deposit the size of a giant gourd on my back? Oh. Freak! Hunchback. Morning. The Royal Torture Chamber. Back to the Daily Grind. You guys psyched for Pope Week? Oh my God, here we go. Another Pope, Pope Week. Week. I love Pope Week. Who wants to see an exorcism? Welcome to the Papal Lottery. Winner of the lottery shall have his private confession heard by the Pope himself. Quasi, you won. Hunchback, no. Do you have any idea the questions he'll have for me? Holy Father, can you fix my hump? Is not my very existence proof there is no God? I don't want to get into that whole hornet's nest. Party, party, party. Are you going to ask for a new back? Oh, yeah, like a tall back, maybe? Or perhaps a new face. No mom would like that face. They'd be like, put it back in my vagina. Okay. On 420, in a tale of love. I very much like your rap. And I yours. Betrayal. Oh. And scandal. Quasi, these are actual depictions of the Pope having sex with Saracen women. Oh, mon dieu. Is that mud? It's not mud. It's not mud. Everyone plays a part. Ah. Or two. Send a warning shot. Shoot over the heads. Yes, my lord. Michelle! Whoops! I said shoot over the heads! I'm not even sure that that was my arrow. I saw it come out of your crossbow. You know what? That was Gregor's. Gregor! Not the sharpest broken lizard movie, I gotta say. I was really expecting a lot more. And there's some edgy humor. It's it's the same old, same old, and that's kind of the disappointment. I really feel these guys are, are all hysterical masterminds of comedy, and they don't push it enough anymore. Super Troopers was wonderful. There's no arguing. Super Troopers is a hysterical movie. Club Dread's one of my favorite films. It's a fucking giallo. I'll fight you on that. It's a giallo film, really and truly. Beer Fest is a timeless Classic. It's a wonderful film. Super Troopers 2 wasn't good. Wasn't good. Not looking forward to them doing a Beer Fest 2, but I had some hope with Quasi. It was a Hulu original movie. Good production value. There's some really great set pieces. Brian Cox is the narrator. Who doesn't love Brian Cox? You know Brian Cox. The guy that narrates the McDonald commercials. That guy. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. I got a few laughs out of it. That's the unfortunate thing. I laugh hysterically like a fucking moron when I watch Super Troopers. It's a very funny movie. Club Dread, I can quote the entirety of. I'd like a Drambuie. Neat. It's a wonderful film. It makes me laugh. Beer Fest is great. I'm usually always smashed when I watch that movie, and or I'll drink while watching the movie and progressively get smashed, so it's funny no matter fucking what. Quasi left me wanting a lot more laughs. Steve Lemmy plays Quasi. He's great. Jay Trent Resicar plays the king. Paul Soder's the fucking Pope. It's funny, but it's like vaguely funny, and I, I don't know. It's a loss for me. I didn't hate it by any means, but again, I'll never watch this movie again. Doubt I'll buy it. I mean, if I ever feel the need to have an absolute, complete collection of Broken Lizard films, then of course I would look for this one, but I'd rather get Puddle Cruiser first. I've never gotten to see Puddle Cruiser. I've always wanted to see that movie. It's their first film. They did it before Super Troopers. 90s. You know, it's got to be funny, right? Or exuberantly offensive, which is fine. It's funny, too. 
sometimes. Oh, what the fuck am I talking about? We're not talking about the list, though. I had in my head that this episode was going to last like 20 minutes and there wouldn't be enough content, wouldn't be enough to put out. But what the fuck do I know? I also feel like I'm just choking <laughs> throughout this entire thing. I'm just choking here. I'm not doing anything good. And then the next movie on the list, number 13. I just don't have a lot to say about some of these films. That's the problem. And what we have here is the Super Mario Brothers movie by Aaron Horvath and Michael Jelinek. Chris Pratt is Mario. Charlie Day is Luigi. I don't mind Charlie Day, but I just didn't get Chris Pratt as Mario. It's fine just giving him a voice. I don't know if, like, the Italian-American Defamation League had some hand in this and was mad about the fucking voice, but I, I don't know. Just something about, it's me, Mario! We, bad Italian accent is the emphasis of the character. Alas, it was a fine movie. I'm not ridiculously attached to Mario, and I really haven't played a Mario game since maybe Mario 64 or something like that. He's a cool little Italian fella. I do really like Charlie Day. There were some laughs in the movie. Of course, you've got Jack Black in the cast. There's songs. They make tons of references, and there's Easter eggs to all sorts of stuff throughout the entire history of Mario, which... I just said, I'm not really familiar with. It was a fun ride. For a movie about Mario, I was pleasantly surprised. But at the same time, I kind of like the one with John Leguizamo. I know, the Dennis Hopper one. It's really, really bad. There's no defending it, but... Eh, it's more of a watch for me. I Up in the air. If this was a serious list that I spent hours compiling all my thoughts and really weighing them out, this probably wouldn't have appeared on the list whatsoever, and I truly forgot that I had seen it until I went over this list that Letterboxd made for me and was like, oh yeah, well, the Super Mario Brothers movie. It's fine. But I can say I enjoyed the story much more than something like Meg 2. I laughed more than with something like Quasi. It was much more believable than The Exorcist Believer. Did not run on as long as Candy Cane Lane. And Chupa was fine. I think if I was like 12, I would have liked it a lot more. But Super Mario Bros., it's got an okay place on this list. And I, I don't hate it. But if you're a Death by DVD fan and you've been listening to this show for quite some time, I think you can see why it isn't my cup of tea. I would deem it more of a children's movie than anything else, which same goes for Chupa, just not my cup of tea. The next film on the list, number 12, is Maggie Moore's by John Slattery, a very watered-down Fargo. Fargo light, perhaps? It was shot well. John Hamm stars. I think he's pretty great. I like how he delivers dialogue more than anything else. He always has the sort of hesitation, and I, I, maybe not be the best way of explaining it, but his release of dialogue is always very entertaining. I enjoy the man, and it was a fine movie. Vehicle's registered to Maggie Moore. Did you say Maggie Moore? Two dead Maggie Moores one week apart. Yeah, that's weird. I'm looking for Jay Moore. He's not here. They're separated. Oh. Big fight. Leave. Oh, I need to leave? Yeah. This is my house, Maggie. Well, Jay Moore's into something. My wife is threatening to go to the cops. I would like you to scare her off the idea. <gasps> They're going to nail me for this. You understand? Loyalty member? Oh, I see. There's two Maggie Moores in the system. What are the odds of that? 
Maggie 1 a mistake for Maggie 2, or was Maggie 2 to cover for Maggie 1? If we remove the second Maggie Moore, it'll make it look like my Maggie was just a mistake. Who would do this? We'll find out. Sooner or later, we always do. If you don't mind my saying Can you so. just not? Thank you. Well, that ties it all up in a nice little bow, doesn't it? My wife was murdered. It'd be nice to finally move on. Well, it's only been a few days. You're right. Take it slow. Give me some backup now. Oh, no. Really? How are we doing? You seem really worked up over this. Hey. Hey. But wait, there's more. Maggie Moore. Maggie Moore. Maggie Moore. Maggie Moore. This is one I have a bit of a discrepancy on with its placement in the list. Uh, like the Super Mario movie, I kind of forgot that I saw this and have not thought about it since the moment that I saw it, which is a shame. The most I can remember from the movie is it's like Fargo light. And what, am I, and what I mean by it being a shame is when you see something, it's supposed to affect you. I mean, that's sort of the point of any form of art, but movies are timeless. Movies are meant to be watched over and over and over again, and this just had no place for that. Once you see it and you get the little hitch and you understand what the whole point of the movie is at the end of it, there's no point seeing it again. It's lost its complete motion of being effective. So it was more like a treat than anything else. You just had this little movie snack, and it's not part of the greater picture. Is it art? I'll never have that argument on the show, but like Meg 2, The Trench, this is more of a popcorn flick than anything else. It's not bad, but it's not really good either. And then we move to, geez, is this 12 or 11? Neither. It's 10. I just can't handle basic math and counting skills. The 10th best movie of 2023, according to me, aka the list that Letterbox made for me, is Fool's Paradise. The patient has lost the ability to speak. He's not deaf and he's technically not mute. What's our first course of action? We are gonna put his ass on the first bus downtown. What do you mean he won't get out of the trailer? Get in. Take a look at this guy. What about him? He's a dead ringer for you! You can finish the day for you! <laughs> Action! Cut! Latte pronto! Excuse me, Mr. Pronto. Can I call you Latte? Latte! Latte pronto! Latte pronto! Is that so, your oh name? Amazing. You and me are gonna do big things, pal. I understand you're from the streets. Mad respect, bro. Make love to me, Latte. You have got a big film premiere tomorrow night. Does that make you a little nervous? <laughs> Who are you really, Latte Pronto? This was a gift from Prince Harry. It was one of the original Knights of the Round Table sword or something. Can't really remember because I wasn't listening when he gave it to me. Get down, big time. By Charlie Day. Great cast. Ray Liotta, John Malkovich, Adrian Brody, of course, Charlie Day. Jillian Bell appears again. Had two movies with Jillian Bell and Charlie Day on the list. That says something. 
Dr. Ken's in the film. It's certainly a throwback. I mean, there's there's a lot of Woody Allen, and there is a lot of Buster Keaton in this film, and it's nowhere near as annoying as a Woody Allen film. You know, the best way I can describe, I've never cared for his work. It has nothing to do with anything else. I just always thought his movies were so weaselly. But you can clearly see an influence from the work of Woody Allen on something like this. And not a, it's not negative. But again, it doesn't seem like a movie you ever want to see more than once. And perhaps some of the things that I feel are a bit more Buster Keaton-ish might even be Stooge-esque. And that's, again, not a bad thing. It felt more like a commercial than anything else. Like, at the end of this, that it was just going to be Charlie Day with Heineken in his hand being like, Drink more Heineken, yeah! Could have been anything. It's one of those films that you just don't remember seeing. And that's such a shame that most of this list are films that I'm going back over going, Oh, yeah, yeah, I did watch that. Not... Any slight or fault to Charlie Day, because I think he's a, a ridiculously funny and talented person. I'm a big fan of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I haven't watched the show in years, but during its heyday, I loved it. Who didn't? But despite it being a satire, it didn't seem to even really be satiring anything more than Hollywood itself, which, you know, that's great, that's fine, but there are so many better films that are satiring Hollywood and the vicious nature of it. Maps to the Stars by David Cronenberg might be one of the greatest of all time, then I would just prefer watching something like that, which is funny. It's a pretty funny movie. It's a dark, grisly, tormenting film, but I get some laughs out of it. It's all about living. Fool's Paradise, I don't think I laughed out loud once. There's some great stuff. There's some good body comedy. Again, kudos to Charlie Day. I think he's a really great person. I think this movie had like an $800,000 budget, and most of that, I'm sure, was spent having streets shut down in Hollywood to film on and things like that. Nice seeing Ray Liotta. May you rest in peace. Oh, man. This is sucking, isn't it? This isn't fun. And the next movie on the list, I can count this time, it's number nine. It's Brandon Cronenberg's Infinity Pool. Now, I did a whole thing about Infinity Pool on our Patreon, which you can check out, www.patreon.com slash deathbydvd, or you can go to our website, deathbydvd.com, and click the page that conveniently says Patreon, and you can hear that episode. And it's been discussed previously on Death by DVD, but I just it's not like I disliked this film either. I'm incredibly ambivalent toward it. Brandon Cronenberg, as a director, I think he's a really talented and interesting guy very big fan of his father but that seems to be part of the problem here is most of his work seems to be kind of like a juxtaposition of his father's he just really reaches for that i hate this term i hate any eoning term but cronenbergian he seems to try to really focus on making his films have that that relative pun intended feel to it and his first film i really 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 liked his first film, I think, is probably his best and strongest. His second film, eh, Infinity Pool. Great cast, Cleopatra Coleman, Alexander Skarsgård, Mia Goth. I love Mia. I love Alexander. I love Cleopatra. They're all wonderful talents. But this movie was overtly fucking vague. Now, the point is very clearly drawn and very understood, but this seems to be all of Brandon's work. It's just very vague and kind of up in the air, and he's got an idea behind what's going on, but, oh, I'll leave it up to you for you to truly figure... Ah, I'm fucking tired of that. 
There's there's no point. There's no point in doing something with this much motion behind it and then just pushing it almost flagrantly. And the movie repeats itself over and over and over again. Some of the things that are the most effective you see at the beginning of the movie and then they do it 30 times over and you're just like, all right, it's lost its power. You've pushed this message too far and then left us with this kind of shrug at the end of the day. And I'm sure I'll catch some real shit for what I'm going to say next. Panos Cosmatos. I feel a lot of similarity between those two. Both very successful fathers. And then they're kind of filling those shoes. But their films are brilliantly shot. Just decadently, wonderfully shot. Some of the greatest sound and color that you'll see for years to come and years before this. They are craftsmanship of true art. Infinity Pool, it's a really good movie. I, at the same time, think it's way too vague, and despite it looking beautiful, just because something looks great, it can't just be great because it looks great. My grandmother used to say pretty is as pretty does, and that's very suitable for film. Oh, isn't it so hard to be a Nepo baby? Let's make a movie out of it. All right, that's fine. And it's hard having discrepancies with things because you say you don't like something, and that's all people will remember. Oh. You don't like this. I didn't say I didn't like Panos Cosmatos. I didn't say I didn't like Brandon Cronenberg. And I didn't say I fucking didn't like Infinity Pool. It's a well-shot film. It's pretty decadent. It's rich in nihilism and darkness. And I enjoyed the ride the first time I went on it. I've seen it about three times now. And it just becomes a little bit more annoying each time I see it. Because like a vulture, I'm picking this fucking thing apart and trying to give myself something to take from the film. And just in contrast with his father, David Cronenberg, you don't have to pick it apart. It's left for you. You have something to take from the film. And if you didn't get it, that's not my fucking problem. This isn't a matter of not getting it. There was nothing to not get. It's just there. It's just kind of rotting on the table and festering and nothing's done with that. And I hope for a better future in my opinion and movie watching experience with Brandon Cronenberg but I I am thankful for his work I enjoy that he's putting out something with contrast to the Meg 2 Exorcist Believer Candy Cane Lane Mario Bros Maggie Moore's Fool's Paradise this movie had a great deal of substance to it and having something subversive and different in mainstream cinemas is necessary you have to have different forms of art you can't just have the same thing plastered in your face. No one can learn. No one can transgress. No one can feel something deeper without that. But it wasn't for me. Infinity Pool, uh, it's a cool soundtrack. Great performances. Mia Goth screaming is always wonderful. She does it absolutely beautifully. But for me, Infinity Pool was just an excess of nothing. I got the point. I understood the point in the first 15 minutes, and then it didn't go anywhere with it. I was very much disappointed with Infinity Pool, but it's fine. The most that I was able to take from it was how excellently it was shot. It does look wonderful. And every single person in the movie is beautiful. And now we move into number eight. This one, I don't know why it's on the list. It's very hard to even fit this in. It is Ultraman Decker Finale, Journey to Beyond, directed by Masayoshi Takisu. And this is pretty much the final episode for Ultraman Decker. Ultraman is a Japanese television show that has ran for four plus decades that I am absolutely enamored and obsessed with. 
Ultraman Decker was actually the very first modern Ultraman series I watched as it aired in Japan. I've been watching each series from its origin forward to go through every single one of them. And I was very excited to watch this as it aired on TV. But the final movie you can't even really dictate and rate unless you go through the entire season of the show and the universe that this takes place in. But regardless of not giving a clear or definitive answer as to why it's ranked where it is on this list, I can say I enjoyed it a whole hell of a lot more than Exorcist Believer or the Super Mario Brothers movie, Maggie Moore's Fool's Paradise. I have a a great soft spot for Ultraman and hope to someday do some ultra episodes about the entire thing to expose you, our wonderful Dead Studio audience, to this beloved show of mine. But we'll move on to the next one because I have nothing to say about Ultraman Decker. Number seven is Asteroid City. I like Wes Anderson, but I don't know a lot about Wes Anderson. I've seen The Life Aquatic, I've seen Bottle Rocket, and I've seen The Royal Tenenbaums. And I think that's the end of my Wes Anderson seeing-ism. But what I have seen, I've always enjoyed. And I enjoyed this too. It just didn't give me much of anything. I love Jeff Goldblum. I'll try and stay spoiler-free. I think, for the most part, I have remained spoiler-free for everything. I really loved how the movie looked. I loved how it was shot. I liked the mix of practical effects as well as computer-generated images. Very similar to Infinity Pool. I really enjoyed the process of watching the film. But what a lot of the film was didn't really reach out as strongly to me. This, though, certainly did more than Infinity Pool. Social parody, when done right, is always wonderful, and this almost had sort of a John Cleese amount of teeth to it. It almost seemed like it was taking a bite out of you at times, and I liked it. You're not here. We're not there. The car exploded. Come get the girls. I have to stay here with Woodrow. I'm not the chauffeur. I'm the grandfather. Where are you? Asteroid City, Farm Route 6, Mile 75. Junior stargazers and space cadets. Each year, we celebrate Asteroid Day, commemorating September 23rd, 3007 BC, when the arid plains meteorite made Earth impact. Holy Toledo, that's Mitch Campbell. You're very good in the one about the tramp in the brothel who gets amnesia and becomes a pediatrician. You were very awesome. Actually, maybe my favorite character ever. I don't know why nobody else liked it. What do those pulses indicate? What? Oh, the beeps and blips? We don't know. Some of our information about outer space may no longer be completely accurate. Anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system as far as we know, Billy. Except now there's an alien. What's happening now? I don't know. I don't like the way that guy looked at us. The alien. How did he, how did he look? Like we're doomed. Maybe we are. I've just informed the president. How long can they keep us in Asteroid City, legally? The world will never be the same. That's an alien doing jumping jacks. That's an alien in a top hat. What's out there? The meaning of life. Maybe there is one. Are you married? I'm a widower. But don't tell my kids. You're saying her mother died three weeks ago. Let's say she's in heaven, which doesn't exist for me, of course, but you're Episcopalian. In my loneliness, I learned to give complete and unquestioning faith to the people I love. I don't know if that includes you, but it included my daughter and your four children. Sometimes I think I feel more at home outside the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, wow. Me too. They're strange, aren't they? They're children. Compared to normal people. 
Yes, that's correct. It's true. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. I don't... I do a nude scene. You want to see it? Huh? Did I say yes? You didn't say anything. Uh, I meant yes. My, my mouth didn't speak. It's hard trying to not dive in, but that's really not the point of what we're doing here. So Asteroid City definitely could potentially be a full episode of Death by DVD because I'd really love to get into the intricacies of the plot and how this film was shot and how this was made. And it would give me a reason to see more movies from Wes Anderson. I thought the cast was fantastic. Scarlett Johansson, Jason Schwartzman, Maya Hawke, Margot Robbie. Adrian Brody appears on the list again. I realize as we have progressed through this list there's neither really been a thumbs up or a thumbs down it's kind of just been a shrug the entire time of eh I tolerate it I've tolerated this film that I've experienced and I'm telling you about it and I'm aware that that's not offering you much but I did say at the beginning of this it was an incredibly low effort show I'm not sure what to call Asteroid City I don't know if it's a comedy it's kind of a romance movie, too, at the same time. But I think more than anything else, it's a, a, a parody. And not perhaps a parody of films, but a parody of people on its own. It's an interesting film. I do feel like I need to get Wes Anderson more. I need to see more of his films to kind of get his style. I, uh, the Life Aquatic speaks for itself. It has enough volume and tenacity that you don't really have to understand anything else. But this is so quirky. I really want to go back and understand what these quirks with Wes Anderson are and what they're about. And, and his style of filmmaking is incredibly unique, sophisticated, and very unique. And I'd like to see more of it over time, how it has evolved to the point that he is at now. Because so much of this movie isn't real, uh, but it takes you back to those glory days, the, the golden era of Hollywood with set pieces and the studio lots, and none of it was real. All your favorite movie houses were fake. They were just sitting on a lot somewhere. The entire town from Gremlins, things like that. It's a very sophisticated, old-world style of filmmaking. And I would like to experience more Wes Anderson. I thought it was a fine film. I think its ranking on this list is okay because I really don't have anything uh, prevalent or relevant to say about Wes Anderson. Aside from, I like him. He seems like a nice fella. He's a good boy, that Wes Anderson. Fuck, this is the first episode of the year. We got like 40 more after this. It'll pick up. They'll get better. Don't worry. They'll get better. Next on the list, number six. And it is Shin Kamen Rider by Hideaki Anno. The brilliant man that brought us Shin Ultraman Shin Godzilla, and Evangelion. Just a, a, a visionary, completely visionary artist. This movie definitely, though, for me, doesn't deserve to be in its spot on this list because I don't know shit about Kamen Rider. I love, as we've talked about, Ultraman. And I only briefly brought that up, but I really, really love Ultraman. It was something that, from the moment I was introduced to, the great Linus Fitness Center actually got me into watching Ultraman. It became a massive part of my life, and I cherish it. I cherish Ultraman. Common Rider is a similar thing. It's a Japanese television show that has been running for decades and decades and decades. And the first season of this show is like, 
150, 200 episodes long, and I have seen about 60 episodes of that, and here and there I've seen spotted other episodes from different series throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s, but I don't have a great deal of love or compassion. There's not an affinity in me toward Common Rider, but this was fucking great. Everything that you needed to know about the original series, there's great homages and Easter eggs, and it's very fun and exciting. I got to see this theatrically. I guess I should go through and re-review the list of all the ones I did see theatrically. Chupa, I saw on Netflix, Candy Cane Lane, I think Netflix, Exorcist Believer, Theatrical, Meg 2, Theatrical, Quasi, Saw It on Hulu, Super Mario Bros, I think I saw it on Hulu, Maggie Moores was streaming, Fool's Paradise was streaming, Infinity Pool, I saw it theatrical, Ultraman Decker, the finale, streaming, Asteroid City, streaming, but I did see Shin Kamen Rider theatrically, and it was a great experience. It was more enticing for me than the show. I was trying to cram as much of the show into my life before the movie came out. I made it to maybe episode 65, 66. The show becomes very, very repetitive, but there's a lot within those first few episodes of the show that play into the movie. The original actor to play Common Rider in the show got hurt doing a stunt and couldn't perform anymore, so they brought in another guy, and all of this stuff is brought very adequately and pleasingly into the film, and it's stuff from real life that actually happened that was manipulated and used for the plot points of the story to progress the story with giving homages and happiness to the fans that weren't quite the Quentin Tarantino level of just straight-up stealing shit. It shined a light and refreshed the show, and that's been Anno's point with his Shin series, that Shin Godzilla was a retelling of the 1954 Godzilla, if it happened in modern time. So Shin Kamen Rider, the same sort of thing. Shin Ultraman, the same thing. I really preferred Shin Ultraman, but that's just because my affinity and affection toward that series and the character, and I know much more about the backstory and the villains and who everyone is supposed to be. Shin Kamen Rider was a wonderful ride, and I, I heavily can suggest, if you've been interested in trying to get into tokusatsu or kaiju kind of cinema, Shin Kamen Rider, Shin Ultraman, Shin Godzilla, great places to start. Shin Kamen Rider introduces you well enough to the series that you could go home and put it on, could find it somewhere and watch that show and you would have a kinmanship toward it. I think I, I'm able to actually speak more positively about this than anything so far on the list because it actually got to me. It actually made me feel something more than, eh, well, that was entertaining. That was fun, which is a real bitch. I really wanted The Exorcist Believer to be so much more than it was, and oddly, out of all of these films, Quasi was the one I was betting all my money on, that that was going to be hysterical. And it was one of those moments that I finished the film and was like, wow, well, that was an hour and 30 minutes. I can't even think of a joke or, or something quotable from that film whatsoever, but immediately five to six things come to mind with Super Troopers and all that, and Beer Fest. There's just quotent quotables to make a Jeopardy pun. Shin Kamen Rider. Wale 
And finally, a part of the list that also might be a little spicy. Maybe you'll disagree with me. Maybe you'll be mad at me. I don't know. But number five, we're on the top five. It's Barbie. Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Now, if I had seen more films from 2023, I don't know exactly where this would have placed on the list. And top five is fine, but it's still, if it had even made it that far been top five on the list now if you subscribe to our patreon you will have seen the barbenheimer special i had a lot to say about barbie and oppenheimer all positive things and i still implore you to go check that out if you don't want to subscribe you can just buy it straight up off of us it's yours forever from patreon and then you can see me dressed like barbie who doesn't want to see me dressed up like barbie i really loved the film I enjoyed every moment of watching it. I loved the songs. I loved the cinematography. Everything about Barbie is fantastic. But will I ever fucking watch it again is the biggest question. And that came into my mind as I was watching it in the theater. I don't think I'm ever going to have to see this again. I get it. I got the point. I understood the story. I liked everything about it. But that's one of the greatest faults for me with Barbie is it just has no watchability again. There's nothing that's going to excite you. I mean, you might laugh a couple times. And I will say, I laughed more watching Barbie than any of the other comedies on this list. Candy Cane Lane, Super Mario Brothers, Maggie Morris, Quasi, Fool's Paradise. This was pretty funny. I, I love... The patriarchy, it's about horses. There's so much that made it pleasurable, but the joke was finished when the credits began to roll, and I kind of damned the movie for that, that I don't think that there could have been anything added in to make it more rewatchable. And this is just me. Just me alone with this thought. I just feel no reason to go back through it again, and that sucks. I want to watch it 50 times. I want to love something so much that every time I see it, I can see something new and that I can find further detail in what I'm watching. And I just don't think that's available for Barbie. It is shot exceptionally, though. Again, as I was discussing with something like Fool's Paradise and Asteroid City, it has so much throwback vibes, as the kids would say. It was shot like a Golden Age film. There is a lot of wonderful integrated technology as well as old school old-fashioned filmmaking mixed into this and that's my highest salute for the film is is how it was shot how it was made it's spectacular barbie land is wonderful since the beginning of time since the first little girl ever existed there have been dolls but the dolls were always and forever baby dolls. Until...
I think it's a wonderful movie, and I, I really stress seeing it. I think it needs to be observed and understood. I think it's a wonderfully well-written movie. Loved the music. I think I already said that, but I hate fucking musicals. I can't stand musicals, but Barbie had me vibing. I was feeling it. I enjoyed every second of seeing it. I just don't think I'll ever feel as excited again. I don't think... Once I've seen Barbie, it's ever going to do anything for me again. And we'll see. I might watch it again just to come back and see how that feeling has changed. But number five on the list, it is Greta Gerwig's Barbie. I think it's a tremendous film. And on my measly list that I didn't even create that was created for me by Letterboxd, it appears as number five. I might have pushed it back if I'd have seen more films, but it certainly is a greater, grander film than anything that has been on the list so far. And I don't mean anything as like a slight toward the movie. You're listening to my opinion, which is why I assume you listen to the show. But I don't know shit about fuck, and I should never assume anything, because you know the old saying, it makes a dick out of you and I. No, that's not it. Oh, an ass out of you and I. Yeah, but what's a dick without an ass? I don't know. What are we talking about? Number four on the list. We're getting into the end zone here. Hayao Miyazaki came out of retirement to make this film, The Boy and the Heron. Mahito. So, you made it. Mother! Have a seat. It's this way, Mahito. A lot of strange things happen in this place. I just hope he stays safe. Save me. Save me, Maito! What exactly are you? Your mother. She's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. What is this place? This world is filled with the dead. I know it's a lie, but I have to see. I'm looking for someone. Let's go. We must protect this world ourselves. Go back, now! Marco! Marco! You and I aren't friends or allies, kid. No matter what. Ready? You see this world? There's more work to be done. A gray heron once told me that all gray herons are liars. So is that the truth or a lie? A the lie. Truth. <laughs> Studio Ghibli. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with Studio Ghibli. I've only seen, I think, two films so far. I've seen Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle, which I both got to see them theatrically. And I fell in love. I was angry at myself for having not experienced these previously in life. I think I looked at them and thought, well, these are children's films. These are cartoons. They're not going to have any sort of emotion or any sort of feeling. And I, I am just so wrong. I'm such a stupid, stupid, stupid man. Very, very wrong. 
because apparently Studio Ghibli films are the most emotional things ever created on the planet. Just uh, gorgeous, gorgeous animation that really makes me rethink my ideas of film and movies that you have this idea that a cartoon it's drawn it didn't really happen they didn't really have to go through that like there's less effort perhaps that's applied to doing something like a cartoon and when you see the studio ghibli films there is just absolute beauty to every single frame and the detail to this beauty with the storytelling devices that are used are always so over the top that you can't help but feel and that's beautiful. You you ha you should always feel when you're watching art. It's a big problem with most of this list is most of these movies are like Tuesdays. They have no feeling because Tuesday has no feel. What's today? It's Thursday. Really? Feels like Tuesday. Tuesday has no feel. Monday has a feel. Friday has a feel. Sunday has a feel. I feel Tuesday and Wednesday. All right, shut up to both of you. And you're just left up in the air with, all right, well, I watched that. The boy and the heron on the other side. You you don't walk away with that feeling. And pretensing this with not having a great deal of experience with Studio Ghibli films, I walked away a little lost with this one. The idea of the story and the ways the story is told to us is rather beautiful, but perhaps I just don't understand enough about Japanese history or Japanese folklore for this one to have really connected with me. I was mostly confused by what I was seeing throughout the majority of the film, and that is an admitted fault on me, just not having experienced this well enough. But the film was gorgeous. The story is a very simple story that's told through very simple plot points, but... Clearly, there's much more to it than that. Uh, my experience, though, was still much greater than something like Barbie. I found myself crying at parts throughout the movie, and I didn't quite understand why, and that, that took me aback. That really made me realize, well, you've got to explore. You've got to open up more. And a lot of the movie is about exploring and opening up more. So perhaps I understood things better than I thought I did, but Spirited Away, for example, I, I much more connected to that Howl's Moving Castle, I thought was just amazing. It's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my entire life, and I don't even recognize that it's animated. It's just, no, it's just Howl's Moving Castle. It's just delightful. And I didn't get to see the English dub for this, so I cannot talk to you about Robert Pattinson, but I've seen some clips, and he is stellar and amazing. I saw the Japanese-language version. And I enjoyed my time. Uh, I, I, I think its placement on the list is a little erratic, but I don't know where else I would put it. I would certainly keep it before Barbie and before something like Asteroid City, but in time, I think... I'll have a cleaner, better opinion on this film. But for the experience theatrically and what I saw, I, I just fervently enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. And now on to number three. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Now, I'm gonna bite my tongue and not say a lot here, 
as I did with Barbie, because you can go find the Oppenheimer special on our Patreon, and you can hear all my exclusive thoughts on Oppenheimer and Barbie. And I dress up like Oppenheimer as well. You get the best of both worlds. I'm Oppie, and then I'm Barbie. Go find it. Support the future of Death by DVD, $5, and you can own the video. Or you can subscribe for a cheap $4 a month, help the future of Death by DVD, and unlock over 40 audio and video episodes available nowhere else. I think Oppenheimer was a much better film than Barbie, but I don't think it really matters. It's not a war between those two. But Oppenheimer is certainly much more watchable. This is something that... I saw in theaters, and that I will watch at home, and that I will watch on streaming. It will have uh, an everlasting effect. And it's not that there's a difference in the stories that are being told that makes one thing better than the other, and both were shot spectacularly. Christopher Nolan made his own bomb for the movie. I just think the weight of this story holds something with a bit superiority over Barbie. And perhaps it's just the weight of our lives, our era, our last, especially for Americans, 50, 60 years of just doom and murder and funding doom and murder, imperialism. There is a tremendous guilt that I experienced while watching this film simply for being an American. And I don't think that entirely was the point behind Christopher Nolan making this film, but I do think that there is some integrity behind that. And <laughs> I think the guilt is fucking necessary because of just what I said. Uh, 60 years alone, I mean, let's just go back even farther. 200 years of this, of blood and imperialism and funding it all over the world. You can't say... I guess what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki wasn't a genocide, but certainly the United States has funded genocides since then with weapons of even greater mass destruction looming as a threat and the weight of all of that that is coming from this production so simply and eloquently given to you in that last scene, that wonderful dialogue between Robert J. Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein. I'm still staying spoiler free. I'm just saying these motherfuckers have a conversation at the end of the movie. It's wonderful. It leaves you uh, with, with just, I wanted to cry, but I just didn't feel like I could. It was an emptiness. It was a great emptiness. And I was very lucky I got to see this on 70 millimeter, and it looked great. It was just wonderful. Traveled to go see Oppenheimer and had a great time seeing it theatrically. But no matter what, the glory of this movie didn't fade away from screen to screen. You could see it on a 70-foot screen, and then you can watch it on a 40-inch screen, and it's still going to be as heavy and brutal each time you watch it. And everything that happened in Barbie, despite being in Barbie's world, and we all know Barbie's not real, are very real things. So I don't want to put some line down and say, well, this movie's very real and this movie's about a toy because all the things that happen in Barbie are just as real and just as important, but still the weight of dropping two atomic bombs on Japan and the creation of those and what it has done to the world since then, yet alone not even speaking on the atomic age, the Cold War, and the fear that exists in the world right now. Oppenheimer weighs, man. It's got weight. I know I've said it a bunch. 
Take a load off RP. Take a load for free. And put the load right on me. It was more horrific for me than anything else. And what I ask out of a movie is invocation. Is is something that's going to make me maybe not better myself, but learn something. And Oppenheimer was a very eye-opening film. And I'm not really versed in Christopher Nolan's movies. I've not seen a lot of his films, so I can't really go into him as a director and as an artist. But from this movie, I, I took a great deal of respect for him. And, like, I've seen The Dark Knight, and I've seen Interstellar, but I've not seen some of his heavier, deeper-meaning movies. And I know I keep using that word heavier, and it's... uh. Kind of like how they described Led Zeppelin's towards heavier than heaven. It was uh, that's also the name of Kurt Cobain's biography. That it just has such a weight to how you view it and how you feel when you leave it. It's not so much like metric and pound. But that's enough on Oppenheimer because, like I said, you can head over to www.patreon.com/deathbydvd and you can buy the Oppenheimer special all for your own viewing displeasure, or you can become a patron and you can watch it, as well as 40-plus videos and audio episodes with much, much more coming soon this year. That's enough. On to number two. Now I'm going to say this first. I actually think this was my favorite movie of the year, and just Googling movies that came out in 2023, I think that this, no matter what, would still be my favorite movie of the year. But alas, it's not in the number one spot. I did not get to see this theatrically, and I was very, very annoyed over it. And when I finally got to sit down and see the film, I just shut the fuck up and didn't know what to think or say. And we're talking about Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid. I am so sorry for what your daddy passed down to you. I wanted a child, the greatest gift of my life. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Hi, Carrot, it's Mom. I'm just calling to say that I'm so, so, so excited to see you tomorrow. You're my angel and I love you. Okay, I love you. Okay, bye, sweetie. I love you. Are you at the airport? I'm on my way, I just... It's not safe, is it? What do you think I should do? I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. Welcome back. I hit you with my car. What? I know. What was this? That's my little assistant health monitor. Feeling sad about going home, Bo? Must feel totally unreal. I'm supposed to be leaving. I don't know if that's gonna happen. You will walk many miles. Dozens will become hundreds. Hundreds will become thousands. Your adventures will continue for years and years. As soon as you get home. I know.
Do you want the truth now? So the first thing I want to say, and I'll try and keep this one a little bit tight too because I'd love to do a full episode on Bo is Afraid, but the first thing that I'd like to say is what is the relationship between Ari and his parents like today? Have they seen his movies? Have they seen any of his movies? Because that short film he did really makes me question things about his dad, but Hereditary really makes me wonder about his mother. Bo is Afraid wow, there's some stuff that went on in Ari Aster's life while he was growing up, and we'll leave it at that. The movie was an incredible journey. It was like a Greek tragedy that sprawled out in front of you and continuously gets worse and worse and worse. You just get hit repeatedly over the head by the filmmaker. It's abrasive. It's exploitation. I think, I dare even say, that Bo is Afraid is a psychotronic film. Now, it's long as a motherfucker. 179 minutes with a $35 million budget. Only brought in 11.5 at the box office. But that's because audiences are stupid. Stupid people. I have seen so much back and forth on this movie. And it just comes down to sort of that higher ground. Did you get it? I don't think you got it. And it's okay if you didn't get it, but if you didn't get it, do you really need to slander it because you didn't get it? Maybe you could just focus on the fact that maybe you didn't get the movie. And it isn't so deep you can't get it. I mean, there's some Carl Jung, there's some Sigmund Freud, there's some Nietzsche, but it's not predisposition to just a, a aspect of philosophy. If you wanted to give it any philosophical title, sure, it's a lot of Freud. There's some heavy Sigmund Freud in this movie, but the telling of the story is brutal, and it's such a treat. I mean, it's psychotic. It's frightening. Every few seconds, you just don't know what's going to happen. The director is, like, riding in the back seat, forcing you to drive a car, but your eyes are covered, and there's a gun to the back of your head, and he's just telling you, turn here. It's fucking frightening. The whole ride, I was just sitting there in utter silence, and then we got to the end of the movie, and I felt like throwing up. I, I felt like just barfing all over when the movie just ends and it cut right there, and you know, oh, I'm gonna stay spoiler-free, don't worry, I'm not going there, but Jesus fucking Christ, you've taken this anxiety attack, it's like doing way too much speed, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse, you know, you read these stories about people on meth ripping out their own eyes, and at the end of this movie, it was like, I just wanna fucking sit alone in the dark. I can say, in my opinion, this is the greatest film from Ari Aster. Hereditary is wonderful. Really, really like Hereditary. Midsommar is a fantastic film. I've only seen it once. I saw it theatrically, and very similar to Barbie, I walked out of it going, well, I saw that. I don't think I need to see it again. I understand the point of it. I have never bothered to watch the extended cut of that film because I feel the story could have been told much better than it was, and I don't want to watch a four-hour version of it. I think there's a lot of sloppy, sloppy stuff that happens in Midsommar, and it dampered the experience for me. I don't want to have to go watch an alternative cut, which sometimes is fine. You buy that special DVD, you buy that special 4K Blu-ray with the director's cut on it, you want to see that vision, but I didn't think 
the vision itself was presented that great in the first place. I thought it was a very simple story, and in comparison and contrast to Barbie, it was told, and I understood it, and I just don't have any interest in revisiting it as to where hereditary I can revisit constantly because of what's inside of that movie, the weight of that movie. Bo is afraid to me, instant classic. I, I will cherish this film for many years to come. I will own it on physical media, which you should always go out of your way to get the physical actual movie. You don't own anything on streaming and it will disappear. Own films by the art. And I feel that I could watch this movie many, many, many more times and find something new and horrifying and revolting every single time. It really is a psychotronic film. It's out of this world. This is the heaviest exploitation that I've seen cinematically. Big budget. $35 million budget in quite some time. So that was my number two that quite possibly may possibly also be my number one. So what is the actual number one? It's time. Let's get the drum roll sound effect going. I think all of you fine folks out there in the graveyard should be able to guess this one. It's Godzilla Minus One. Takashi Yamazaki's Godzilla Minus One. Now, I've never seen a single film from this man before. He made a film called Always Sunset on Third Street 2, came out in 2007, which featured the very first appearance of Godzilla aside from a Godzilla film, and that's what got him this job, this wonderful vision he showed of Godzilla. But this movie was exceptional, and that's on top of every other Godzilla movie. The whole legacy from 1954 to now, including the American films. This is one of the greatest Godzilla entries of all time. Now, many people are quick to say that this is the greatest Godzilla film of all time. I won't say that. I think that needs... A, a complete, for me, rewatch of the entire series, which I watch spottily throughout the year. I never watch them in order, but I always watch Godzilla vs. Hidora two or three times a year. I love Godzilla 84, Godzilla vs. Destroya. There are multiple wonderful emotional entries to the series, but to give a bit of credence, I guess, to many of the critics that say this is the greatest Godzilla film, uh, not many are filled overtly with emotion. Not many do you really relate or care about anybody you're watching in the film aside from craving awesome Godzilla suit battles and watching the new monster, whether it be King Ghidorah, the smog monster, or cyborgs. You're always very much focused on Godzilla, the miniatures, the suits. There's never been an expressly human story since Godzilla 54. And I do think there is arguments to be had in that because 84 has a great human story. The 90s era has a wonderful whole story with the psychic subplot and characters actually returning for once. But Godzilla Minus One offered us something very different. And there was no suits. It was all CGI. There are no miniatures. It still is an exuberant film and an exceptional film at that. Mm -hmm. 
Celebrating 70 years of Godzilla, what this movie does is reintroduce us to the king of the monsters. It's not a remake, it's not a reboot. If you're familiar with Godzilla, this happens all the time. There's like four different Godzillas. The first one dies in 54, then we get the second one, and that guy runs until 84. And then after 84, we get a son of Godzilla, even though there was a son of Godzilla in the 70s. It goes all over the place. It's never the same guy. And then some stories will restart that it's just the Godzilla from the second movie. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which format or iteration that it is. What this is is its own standalone retelling of what we know to be. And from the very first second of the movie, you are pulled in. Now, I saw this three times in IMAX, and I, if I can, <laughs> I will see it again. It was an experience. When Godzilla roared, you could feel it through your body. It made you shake. It was just so tall and so big and so brazen, everything was riding on the audience, really emotionally feeling these characters, and I cried. I've never cried over a Godzilla movie. I cry a lot, though, but over a Godzilla movie never once before. I sat there, and I cried out of astonishment. I cried out of happiness being able to experience something like this. Thank you, Toho, for sending this movie to the United States. And then I cried because it's a fucking great movie, because it's an emotional movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's tremendously built. Everything about this movie really comes down to what I was talking about earlier, the blood the the imperialism and the destruction that has been caused by the United States government for the last 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. This directly correlates with Oppenheimer, because if it wasn't for the destruction of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which I'm very well aware, it's not like we walked in there and committed this act against Japan for no reason. It certainly wasn't based on imperialism or something like that. It was a reaction to an action in a time of war, and what happened at Pearl Harbor is devastating. The weight isn't about one action being worse than the other action. It's the introduction of these weapons, this step up into atomic warfare, which changed our world, our culture, worldwide from the west to the east, no matter what your thoughts on the matter are. Oppenheimer's bomb changed the world. And this movie plays greatly upon that and what happened at Pearl Harbor. There is humanity that is interjected for the first time, truly, in a series about a giant monster that is so overwhelming that Godzilla is no longer the star. And you wouldn't think that would make for a positive in a Godzilla movie, but it certainly does. And it gives you a whole new retrospect of humans and the relation to what happens in these films. The monster is just a fucking euphemism. And I know it might sound silly, me having to point that out, but I don't think a lot of people recognize the weight of goddamn Godzilla. That's the word of the night, the weight. Put your motherfucking weight on it like Rudy Ray Moore said, am I right? And he most certainly does put his weight on it. I will leave the critic's name out of this, but I was reading a couple days ago, at least in the 
horror and underground scene, a very well-respected critic made a comment along the lines of, I'm tired of seeing people saying Godzilla Minus One was the greatest movie of the year who hardly watch new movies. Now, yes, I am guilty of that, and I've built an entire episode about me being guilty of that and reading a list that was manufactured for me by Letterboxd, but alas, none the motherfucking less. I don't know if Saltburn is going to be better than Godzilla because I didn't see it, but I doubt it's going to be, and despite being a big fan of Godzilla and having a lot of passion for the series and Japanese films in general, as I was talking about Ultraman earlier and Kamen Rider and things like that, this still would have been my pronounced number one. Bo is afraid to me as, as just a dude. Let's take away that I'm a critic or an actor or an artist or anything else. Just as a motherfucker, Bo is afraid really spoke to me, but Godzilla Minus One spoke to everyone. <laughs> it has spoken to American audiences so loudly and so clearly. Toho has heard, okay, they want more. And gosh, isn't that wonderful? It's great having a foreign film, too, that has made such a wave in Western audiences. It's just, and we have our own Godzilla. You've got Monarch, the, the, the Godzilla series that has come out. You've got the American Godzilla films. I don't like them as much. I don't enjoy them as much. I think they're terrific, though. I really think that they're moving forward. I really think they have some tenacity and spunk, and they're fun, but I prefer the Japanese films. No fault to the American ones. And this being such a atom bomb of a release to make a terrible fucking joke, it's great. I really hope that it has pushed more audiences to wanting to see more foreign films. And the th same thing can be said the year before last in 22. Shin Ultraman was released briefly into American cinemas. Shin Kamen Rider was released briefly into American cinemas. And Studio Ghibli films have been, again, briefly released into American cinemas, and they've all been dubs. You've been able to experience the film in its integrity from the country that created it with the emotion behind all those words, from those actors, from those performances, and it's not been whitewashed. It's not been redubbed and changed with honky accents. You really are forced to experience the fucking culture behind it, and it's. I, I think it's tremendous. I think it's terrific. I think exposing Western audiences to the greater picture of art is necessary because we are so closed off here. Now, despite Ben Wheatley being from the UK, The Meg 2 is very much an American movie, and it's just like the Marvel films, the DC films, Star Wars movies. There are these massive, tremendous budget films that, in the long run, don't really facilitate anything. They don't have a message. They don't have a meaning. Now, the original Star Wars films did. Uh, it seems like the Rebels are Mujahideen sort of types. Take that as you will. Fighting against an evil fascistic empire. Take that as you will. Now, a lot of popcorn candy movies, and that's all good and fine. But Godzilla Minus One was completely transgressive and pushed from that, all the while managing to kind of take in its hand all the aspects of these popcorn and candy movies that you can see from Marvel Studios or a new Star Wars film or the Meg 3, 4, 5, and 6 that I'm sure one day will exist. The question is, how long will Jason Statham be in all those Meg movies? The Meg 4, starring Christian Slater, coming soon to the Sci-Fi Channel. That's not even unbelievable. But I don't know, it is, because Christian Slater's making Netflix movies about chupacabras. Oh man, this was terrible, wasn't it? 
This <laughs> this was this is stressful. I hope that we can edit this into something somewhat listenable. The listenable, listenable, listenable. Oh God, we're past the point of debating on how to pronounce words. We've been going on for almost two hours. This is the very first episode of Death by DVD for the year 2024. Is it a shit fest? <laughs> Maybe. It just may be. But that is it. That's the top 17 of the year 2023. Didn't quite make it to 20. I'll try this year to pump it up so next year I can give you an even worse episode that's even longer with more movies that I have nothing to say about. But before we finish this episode... I'll go ahead and give you the rundown of my top directors of 2023. It's an interesting and eclectic group of people. We got starting off Paul Schrader, Lau Kar Leung, Don Coscarelli, Yasujiro Ozu, Ishiro Honda, Abel Ferrara, Faith Hubley, Roger Corman, David Cronenberg, Dustin Guy DeFay, Robert Brisson, Ricky Lau, Nikiyatu Jusu, Eric Romar, Peter Bogdanovich, James Cameron, John Hubley, Rainia Verna Fassbender, David Lynch, and George A. Ramiro. Did any of those directors actually appear on the list, on, on the best films? I don't think a single one of them did. That's funny. No. <laughs> How about that? What a fucking useless episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> to all of you out there in Radio Land. Wow, what a treat. The first episode of the year. What a mouthful of Greek salad, as Joe Pilato once said. But that's it. Jeez. An all-new year of death has begun. And we're going to have some fun this year. We're going to do things a little bit differently. We won't do this again for a very long time, though. Don't worry. Trust me. We'll actually talk about something in-depth coming soon. Next week on Death by DVD. You're in for a treat. Who Shot Hank, the all-original audio drama about the brutal murder of the creator and original host of Death by DVD, Hank the World's Greatest. You're going to get the first few parts all together as one epic adventure. We've got some amazing re-releases of previous episodes, recut, edited, stronger, faster, Harder, August Underground's Mortem, and who knows what else is up my sleeve for the month of January. Masters of Horror, Milligan Madness, Death by DVDs, Wild Wild West, and more will return February and March. We've got a whole lot in store for you. All new video episodes coming bi-weekly to Patreon. And don't forget, starting this February, Death by DVD will only be available every two weeks. But in the meantime, you can join our Patreon and join us in the graveyard for your absolute fill of Death by DVD with exclusive video and audio episodes that will be available absolutely nowhere else. Weekly videos, audio commentaries, and much, much more coming soon to Patreon. Join me in the graveyard and don't miss out on all the fun. We're dead and loving it on Patreon.
but this is the end of this episode. Happy New Year. Thank you for joining me here. I'm sorry. I'm sure this was fairly painful. Happy New Year, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for liking. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for caring. This wasn't the best episode. And don't you worry, there won't be any more list episodes for at least six months. That's it. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. You have been listening to Death by DVD's first episode of 2024. I am Harry Scott Sullivan. Until next time, pleasant tomorrows. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Crystal Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.